How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. You're listening to Episode 7 of A Living Hope in Hopeless Times, where Michael teaches from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Next week, we will be releasing our second special edition interview with Daniel and Jamie Hurd. Daniel and Jamie are a fun, good-looking couple who are proud parents of three sweet kiddos, but they have lived every parent's greatest fear. And Michael has repeatedly said after being in ministry for 30 plus years, having seen it all, he has never seen a couple navigate this road of hardship like Daniel and Jamie. It has been an honor and a labor of love to produce their episode, and I hope you'll listen to it. But now let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. passage in 1 Peter we're looking at tonight, verses 22 to 25, essentially deals with a new birth means a new life. A new birth means a new life, and a new life brings new relationships as part or members of the family of God. A new birth means a new life, and a new life means a new set of relationships, particularly with members of God's family. Let me read the whole section, and then I'll review it as we go through the text Verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 1, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For as you have been born again, not of the seed which is perishable, um, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So the first thing I want us to think about is our souls being purified. Chapter 1, verse 22. What does it mean that our souls are purified? To get a, land, a lay of the land on chapter 1, he's now going horizontal. From 1 to 21, it's all been pretty much vertical theology. Now he's starting to apply it horizontally to how we live as Christians. Remember our context. These are people that are uh, dispersed. They're living in a place that's not their home. They're suffering for the cause of Christ. Keep that in mind as we read some of these things. Now the focus turns on this horizontal plane of their purified souls and relationships. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love. Purified here is moral, not ritual. And the reason I bring that up is for this audience, especially those who had Jewish history, they would think of a ritual purification. The entire uh, festival structure, the sacrificial structure was sewn into the idea of ritual. Now, if you grew up Catholic or Episcopalian or Lutheran or like some of us did, there's a lot of ritual. And what happens, unintended consequence, it becomes what? Meaningless repetition. 
We just do it because we've always done it. We never really stop and say, why are we doing this? And not unlike the pious Jew. They weren't evil or bad people uh, in the sense of what they were doing, but they were doing it out of a ritual, hoping, hoping the ritual would somehow have effect. Uh, when you go to Israel, some, many of you have, when you go to the southern steps, we point out the mikvahs. A mikvah was a, simply a Jewish bath that had steps that went down. If you had the money and the, and the uh, time to build it, you had steps that went down and steps that went up. And the men would come up before Passover, before a festival. They would take everything off but their inner ephod. And they would walk down those steps into the water, dip themselves, and walk out. Maybe the same steps. That was a ritual. They didn't have dial soap. They didn't have shampoo and conditioner. They just walked in the water and walked out. And that was called a ritual bath. But it was ceremonial. It was a big deal. So the nuance of a moral purification versus ritual is a bit of a a learning cliff for them. This isn't just a ritual thing you're doing, checking the box or filling the law. This is a moral issue. Now, put it in terms of how they would hear it and you and I would hear it, you can't purify yourself anyway. No one can purify him or herself. We're bound in our sin, we're bound in our guilt, we're bound in our shame. So to put this together, the Jew would think it was ritual. What Peter is saying is it's moral. How can a man be right before God? How can anyone be pure before God? You can't unless someone else does it for you. So Peter is launching into this horizontal Christianity saying, look, you have to purify yourself in the sense that, verse 22, you obeyed the truth, purified your soul, And then the outcome for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently loving one another from the heart. Our self-consciousness of sin. Do you remember when you came to Christ, your view of sin, how it changed? I vividly remember. Things that sort of bothered me as some kind of conscience I had of right and wrong. My parents should wouldn't want me to do that. My teachers wouldn't want me to do that. That all went away. It was like, this is shameful. This is wrong. This is horrible. When I do this, I feel not just guilt. I feel miserable. I feel remorse. I feel I need to stop doing this. How do I stop doing it? Because as a believer, our sins take on a whole different uh, guilt and shame and conviction, what we call it, as opposed to just being a, a person who ambles around with some moral conscience that's probably tainted. So the self-consciousness of sin that we know we're unclean, we know we're undeserving. Talking to a friend tonight, we're comparing notes about people we know that are made poor decisions or struggled. And and why not me? I'm not any better. Why has God been gracious and kind to me? I have no earthly idea. James eight verse four is the same four verse eight is the same vein. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's the, the antecedent is draw near to him. You and I can't do anything to cleanse our hands and hearts except acknowledge we can't do anything and ask him for forgiveness. So the imperative for James is draw near to God. You, you appeal to God. I wrote a little book on prayer a number of years ago, and I always write the same thing when I sign a copy for somebody. I write, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Because that's what prayer is about. It's about a spiritual a connection with the sovereign that I can't articulate or understand, but drawing near to him heightens my awareness. It's just like living in the dark and all of a sudden turn the lights on. I can see things a lot more clearly. I see my sin. I see my struggle. I see my shame. I see my guilt. And once in a while I see that I got some wrong tapes playing. And I'm really, 
not sinning or guilty or shameful. I've just got some wrong taste playing. But I have to draw near to him before I can calibrate that. The same theology is undergirding 1 Peter 1.22. By obedience to the truth, which is another way of saying they trusted Christ. They walked the aisle. They prayed the prayer. They believed in him. They responded to the truth. Obedience and faith sometimes go hand in hand. Well, this heart change, or I think a better way uh, to characterize it, would be the word character change. The way Peter uses heart here is not the way some people extrapolate. In fact, some of your Bibles use the word pure heart in there. Uh, Most of them have taken that word out because it's not. It's only a couple of manuscripts in the Greek New Testament. It shows up. Some older Bibles left it in. It's a bit of a debate, but most of them drop it, I think, for good reason. Because it's not about making your heart pure. Because why? You can't make your heart pure. Only he can make your heart pure. Only he can forgive you of your sin. So I think it's more a nuance of character here. Um, Purified your souls with a sincere love for the brethren, fervently loving them from your character, which is what's changing. Um, It's uh, really pretty simple to apply this, I think, because many of us have been on trajectories of sanctification. Some of us are growing fantastic rates. Some of us bumping up and down, and and we all have done this, right? Um, When you and I coddle our sin, when we make excuse for our sin, when we have these little secret compartments in the recesses of our heart and mind that we think somehow we can cordon off and God doesn't see those, and we, we, we caress them, we love them, we coddle them, we protect them, we're doing everything else pretty well, but we've got this little compartment. Um, Cindy and I were with friends in Dallas this weekend, and uh, the wife and I have a lot in common, and the husband and Cindy have a lot in common. It's a fun relationship. And uh, she was showing me this thing. She was reading her devotion about fasting from a critical spirit. And I went, why are you showing this to me? <laughs> What's the, there was no hidden agenda. It was a blatant agenda. <laughs> and we were reading this and talking about what it's like to stop being critical. You can make excuses for being critical because you're right. You see, I think our sin becomes more sophisticated the longer we walk with Jesus. We think it's more sophisticated. It's just the same base stuff. We're not maybe having an affair or living in immorality or addicted to pornography or abusing substances. Uh, Maybe we are, but my point is we get these compartments where we think I can coddle and caress and protect that, and it's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you, James and Monsters. Since you obeyed to the, the truth, purify your soul. So there seems to be some connection here. I don't think we do the purification. I think the acknowledgement that we can't be pure is where it begins. And then he intercedes, and he helps us with conviction, and he enables us to get forgiveness. The result of the truth purifying our souls. Now, this is, this is kind of an interesting thought that Peter's doing here. But the result of this truth is we love others. That's kind of a curve. It doesn't seem, I don't see that coming as I'm studying this passage. And all of a sudden, well, that's what Peter's saying. The result of this truth purifying our hearts or our character enables us to love others. That's the impetus of the whole passage. The new birth means a new life, and the new life, Peter says, results in new relationships. The fact that we have to, obedience and truth are tied together. From the grammar standpoint, go back to two things that happened in the past. We're going to look at one of them here and one of them in a minute. The obedience was something they did in the past. You have done this, we would say in English. You already did this. 
You already obeyed in the past, meaning you trusted by faith. As a result of that, you're a different person. A new birth, a new life, a new life, a new relationship. The Holy Spirit enters our life to change us. Bruce Orbst, a commentator, makes a very interesting observation. He says, our souls are not purified when we submit to false teaching or deceitful doctrine. Listen again. Our souls are not purified when we submit to false teaching or deceitful doctrine. That's a very clever observation. If I'm submitting to the truth, I'm convicted in a good way, and I oh, I, I need to repent of that, I need his forgiveness, I need help with this area, whatever it is. But if I'm, if I'm, being, if I'm submitting to the wrong truth, to false truth, it doesn't change me. And that's why we talk about a seared conscience. That's why we talk about people who are given over to certain things. Because once you've done that path, it doesn't change you for the good. Souls are not purified, he says, when one submits to false teaching or deceitful spirit and doctrines. So if we submit to the wrong information, we'll find out we're flat affect. We'll find ourselves defensive in posture. We'll find ourselves justifying our sinful choices and behaviors. Well, to love Christ as he wants us to is to love other people as he designed us to. It is the nature of the new birth to give new life. And the new life means new relationships. That's Peter's thesis in this passage. Verse 22, the second part, he talks about a fervent or sincere love. A sincere love for the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. We love because we were loved. Precisely, we love because you are our brothers in 1 John, or we could say sisters. In 1 John three fourteen. we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Think about that. He says that, that's an identifier. You know you're a Christian if you love others. Something changes. We are Now, some of us are loving people. Cindy and I have a dear friend, and she's, she, I, I've told her once she loves too much. She loves people. She, you know, she's so loving and so generous and so kind, she loves too much. Uh, but most of us don't love that much. <laughs> most of us got sort of guardrails in our love. We're, we're self-protective. We're careful. We dole it out carefully. Um, but this passage is saying a sincere love for the brethren. John in 1 John 3 says, if you've passed out of death into life, because causal, we love the brethren. I don't know. Have you thought about this lately? Because you're a believer in Christ, you've got to love other, other Christians? I mean, it's somewhere back there in the file folder, but is it a, is it a predominant thought? And Peter, again, is talking to a dispersed group that doesn't live at home. And they're being persecuted for the gospel. Striking to think if we do not love the brethren, there could be a corollary. We don't know Christ. If I have no endearing care, compassion, concern, we have to define love. But if I have no concern for others, it's just about me, then I have to go back and scratch my head. What did I truly believe? What did I truly embrace if I don't care about these people? Peter underscores it with this phrase, sincere, a sincere love. Now, most of you already know this, but it's where the English word unhypocritical comes from, unhypocritical. It's anotokripos. It's, it's the idea of being underjudged with the prefix that says you're unhypocritical, meaning you're the real deal. You're sincere. We all know the play-acting story of the Greeks, the comedy and tragedy, because at a distance you couldn't see and so they would use these masks that were over-accentuated comedy or tragedy in different ones. And that's the, the whole idea of these large-scale makeups was the hypocrite. You played a part. 
A sincere love is one that is without hypocrisy. It's one that doesn't play act. Now, it struck me studying this. This is, let's just call it uh, 60 or 80 years after Christ's death. You know, even in antiquity, people feigned love. Even in Peter's day, people pretended they cared. They pretended that they loved people that they really didn't love. Human personality hasn't changed no matter how advanced technology gets. Romans 12, 9, love without hypocrisy. The ancients could feign love just like we can feign love. And he says, no, a sincere love. Now, I don't want to push it too far, but we've got two different words for love here in your Bible. We have Philadelphia, and typically it's slurred as agape. Agape, ao is probably the word. Uh, Philadelphia tends to be a, a brother-sister type relationship. We talk about we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, where agapeo tends to mean a sacrificial or others forward um, there are five Greek terms for love, and C.S. Lewis and others have written books on these. I think sometimes they drill down a lot deeper than those words are supposed to mean. Sometimes we just take them, you know, I mean, you might love your dog. You might love your husband or your wife. You might love your cat. I don't know how it's possible. You don't love your cat. <laughs> is the love you have for your cat the same as love you have for your husband or wife? Of course not. So we parse words that sometimes we don't really need to work that hard. But what he's saying here is a horizontal love expression between the family of God and sometimes it's a sacrificial love. Cindy and I, for many years, taught marriage conferences and we would tell stories about our own love relationship. And of course, when you're dating and in love, you know, when you're first, you you think you're in love, but let's just be candid. You're just in lust. You don't have any clue what love is when you're dating. If you're just kind of gaga, la la. You know, after the, the first couple of bouts of flu and children with diarrhea and, you know, money problems, and then you start learning what love is, right? It's a whole different ballgame. Love is sacrificial. Love is doing things I don't want to do. It's putting her before me, her putting me before herself. And we came up with this little phrase when we were having uh, a friend of mine used to say, he and his wife had words. Y'all ever heard that expression? We had words, and we had words, and Cindy, I would say, you know what? I love you. I just don't like you right now. Everybody gets that, right? I, I'm not going anywhere. I love you. I just don't like you right now. Don't talk to me. Leave me alone. Don't touch me. And if you haven't had it in marriage, you've had it with children for sure. Because our children, we can love them to death, but sometimes we do not like them. And they're very clear when they don't like us, but they love us. They don't know it, but they do. Take some, you know, 20, 30 before they get there, but they, they love us. We're to love the brethren and the sistren. Sometimes it's a familial relationship. Sometimes it's a sacrificial relationship. Peter is saying this is indicative of a new birth, results in a new life with a new family relationship. He continues that we're born again eternally, verse 23. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Through the living and enduring word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God, the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Peter explains again, new birth, new life, new relationships. In keeping with the grammar, purified your souls, I mentioned earlier, is parallel having been born again. These phrases, I don't want to bore you with grammar, but they run parallel in his structure. It's a very brilliant structure he writes here. He's making the observation that were past tense. Your soul was purified. You were born again. Having been born again, they occurred in the past. 
He uses a negative and a positive. We talked about this before in Peter. Paul, of course, does it often as well. Negative, you're born not of the seed which is imperishable, but uh, perishable, but of imperishable. And those pictures are vivid throughout Paul and the New Testament. Some of you plant annuals. Some of you plant perennials. I'm a perennial guy. I don't want to have to dig them up and replant them every year. My wife loves to plant annuals and never just let them die. I know you got to dig them up. But she doesn't want to do that part. She just wants to plant them. So that's why I like perennials. But, you know, perennials can die too. They can be so abused by the weather or over-fertilized or whatever, they may not come back the next year. The idea of this imperishable seed is no matter what happens, it lives. It's an eternal perennial. The closest analogy I can think of, it's like a weed. You can't get rid of the weeds. The word seed is only found here in the New Testament. It's sporao, sporao, spore. Seems to hold the idea of both sowing as well as procreating. There are other words that are used in the New Testament for scattering, which is the verbal activity of distributing seed. When the church is persecuted, the word for scatter is a double wordplay of when he scattered the church because they wouldn't leave Jerusalem. So he brings persecution at the stoning of Stephen and they all run away. And the church is scattered because God wanted them to get out of Jerusalem. Here we have the spora. Seed is from natural life versus new life. Of course, seed imagery is prominent throughout even Jesus' time. All the potential of something that you can't see or understand has to die before it comes back to life. Well, here we're given this picture of an imperishable spore. The same usage is found in the way we talk about the inheritance of the believer versus the inheritance of the unbeliever. Believers await an eternal, imperishable inheritance. Matthew 6, Jesus speaks of this verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. How many of you have stored something in a box with the proper wrapping, the proper whatever, you put it away, you come back sometime later, and it's bad. It's either got mold in it or it's decomposed or the little silverfish have found a home in there or something has happened to it. And it's, you stored it well, but it didn't last. We've all had that experience if you've moved and stored stuff for any length of time. Where thieves and break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. There's an eternal inheritance for the believer, just like there is an eternal imperishable birth for the believer, a relationship that continues on and on. The imperishable life is expanded by two verbs, living and enduring. The living and enduring word of God. God's word is not dead. It's not static. It's not subject to moth or rust. It's not subject to what the culture says about it. It's not subject to what some popular writer says about it. It's impenetrable. It's enduring. It's living. Now, the word here is interesting because the way Peter's going to talk about this in a moment, the word's going to have to do with mouth and two different words for word. You might be putting it this way. He's going to talk about the word of God every way he possibly can in a very short, compact couple of verses. The word is spoken, it's written, it's living, it's enduring, and God's word is the foundation. His word incites, his word confronts the sinner. Uh, and in Peter's argument, the word of God is the life-giving seed. New birth means new life. 
New life means new relationships. New relationships happen to be with the family of God. Now he appeals to Isaiah chapter 40, and he jumps around a bit. He looks at verse 6 and verse 8. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Simple contrast, the temporary nature of frail things. He's making the comparison to humanity. It's frail. People die versus the eternally enduring nature of the word of God. Um, don't want to be maudlin, but, you know, Cindy and I went, I went to a funeral weekend before last in Dallas. And I have a list of people in my Bible. Some of you know the story about that. And I was thinking the other day, I just started writing down people that I know that have gone on to be at the Lord. Just to remind myself of the brevity. Not to be maudlin. Just remind myself, this is a short thing. We're living like it's going to last forever. It's not. It's a short run. And how, how do we live well? If you're in your 20s, just ignore me. But, you know, when you're in your 56, 70s, you start thinking about this stuff. It's a short run. And you bury your parents and grandparents and friends who die young and people who die out of, out of time. The contrast is eternally versus temporal. Humanity, in one sense, is like grass. I have a friend that loves Bermuda. He lives uh, way out, and he did his entire acre and a half of Bermuda. Of course, you know what happens in Bermuda in the summer? It just it goes all brown. Everybody else has got green grass, and he's got this brown yard. He loves Bermuda. I don't get it. I go, do you love looking at brown grass? And he goes, yeah. Good for him. I want green grass in the summer. Glory is an interesting word that Peter uses here in all its glory. Glory is the height. You bring home the roses from the grocery store or Costco or Sam's, wherever you get them, and you buy them in the buds, and uh, sometimes they actually bloom. <laughs> sometimes they, you know, they don't even make it. They just fall off, and it's like, what a ripoff, you know, the way they're grown. Uh, but boy, when they're in full bloom, how long do they last? Not very long. Not long enough for all the money you pay. But they look really pretty, but they fall off. The height of their glory, they look great, but they, you know, I guess you could spray them with lacquer and hope they'd stay that way a while. But, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The, it's such a simple comparison. Humanity fades just like grass. Eternity with God, eternal lasts forever. It's enduring. It's living. It doesn't stop. And then Peter finally puts this little epitaph, if you will, on this. And this is the word which is preached to you. I think it was a rope-a-dope. I don't think they, but they, I don't think they, they saw it coming when they were reading it. It's like, oh, that's the same thing was given to us. And this is where Peter does such a fabulous job with Old Testament theology bringing it into their current context. The same eternally enduring word that he spoke in Isaiah's day is the same eternally enduring word that he speaks to them. And he introduces the word euangelizo, euangelizo, which he preached to you. Euangelizo is euangelio. Euangelon is where we gloss and get the word English evangelism or evangelical. Those are words we kind of make up from Greek words because there is no equivalent in the English language. We've talked about um, uh, translation versus transliteration. You know the difference? Translation is you take a word like mathetes and translate it to disciple. Transliteration is when you take baptizo and you make it baptism. Or you take euangelion and make it 
evangelical or preach the gospel or proclaim the good news because there's no equivalency for that word. So you transliterate it. You take a letter for letter. It's sort of, it sounds like, looks like equivalent. There's like two words in Hebrew that made their way into English. One is gamal, gamal, camel. There was no equivalent English word for gamal. So they just kind of rob letter for letter and make it sound like the word in Hebrew, camel. So these words like euangelion, euangelizo, baptizo, we, this is why English is such a stinking complicated language for people who have to learn it who didn't grow up with it. Because all these words that come from different, different origins, we just sort of stick them in there. If you don't believe me, this is just for fun. You know what a declension is. Like in Spanish, you know, habla, habla, blah, 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 blah. You know how this works. So let's take the word, let's take the word uh, go. Go went gone. Where in the world does went come from? There's not even a G in it. It should be go, go, gone. He go to the store. Where'd went come from? See, English is crazy. You think Hebrew is bad. English is worse. That's just for free. This eternally enduring word that Isaiah spoke of, this imperishable word applies today to you, the recipients of this letter. Three times the word is noted. Verse 23, the enduring word of God, which is logos. Verse 25, the word of the Lord endures. And verse 25, this word is the word rhema. The first one is the content of the word. And we can't parse these. Rhema more than likely refers to what comes out of God's mouth. And that would go back to Isaiah 40. What God spoke in the Old Testament to the prophets. We're reading it now. Peter's audience was reading it. But the Hebrew heard it. And even the law was oral tradition was memorized and handed down by hearing. They heard God's word. By the New Testament, we're having it written and it's being passed around. Everything God ordered from eternity past, everything God said throughout scriptural history, everything God has accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ is eternal, enduring, and cannot be stopped. This is one of the things that aggravates me. Maybe it doesn't aggravate you, but it aggravates me. And I don't mean to be age differentiating, but younger Christian minds who think less of this and more of their experience. Less of this and more how they feel. Less of this than what they gather on the little short snippets they read or a popular author they read. I'm not against any of that, but it's got to be grounded here or it's just an opinion. It's just a worldly viewpoint. And it's, it's, um, it's frustrating when you see people make really unfortunate decisions because so-and-so said so. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back. Can, can you find that taught somewhere in the scripture? Can you, can you appeal to a principle, a passage, an argument there? Why well, doesn't God love? Well, no, 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 no. We've got to be a little more specific than that. God also brings condemnation and brings judgment. He also evaluates believers' works. He also is a holy God. No, he's just loving. Well, that's just about this much of what you need to know. And one of the things I draw from this is this whole aspect of the you and Galizo is not just the presentation of the gospel. You hear the word gospel a lot in preaching today. It's gospel-centered preaching. This is the gospel. We've got to preach the gospel. And that becomes white noise like the word blessing or righteous or whatever. It just becomes white noise. The gospel, in a nutshell, is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the clearest gospel you're going to find. But the proclamation of the gospel is not just a word or box. 
It's heralding the message. It's explaining the truth. It's talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's clarifying false teaching. To proclaim, to herald, to teach encompasses a lot more than just whatever this key word the gospel means right now, the way it's being used. Well, let me give you two lessons and then we'll, we'll call it a night. Number one, how sincere is your love for other believers? How sincere is your love for other believers? I'm not talking about the ones that are easy to love. I'm talking about the ones that are difficult to love. How sincere is your love when they're difficult, when they're wrong, when they believe things you don't believe? And, of course, you don't have a critical spirit like me, so you don't think they're wrong and I'm right, but uh, when they're on their way. One of my most doctrinaire friends, um, some of you know him, but I won't use his name. He, uh, he's, he's, he makes me look like, you know, gray zone. He is so black and white, it's not even funny. Um, we had dinner once years ago, and I said, I wish I could be as sure of one thing as you are of everything. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about a mutual friend that he was uh, speaking with. And I was like, this guy, in your view, he's wacko on about 10 different theologies. Yet you're on the same platform with him, but you won't speak with so-and-so over here, who I think is equally a whack job. And I'm just asking him his opinion. And he had had this most genteel response. He goes, Michael, so-and-so is still on his way. I thought that was pretty interesting. So-and-so is still on his way. Yeah, they got some goofy theology. Yeah, there'll be some fruity things. But I'm not going to disassociate. Now, there's other ones he would disassociate with for different reasons. I'm not saying that's the right way. I just found it striking that he had figured out a way to navigate this thing. Because it's not our role. I mean, we should have a series on what judgment is and is not. You're judging people. Well, for heaven's sake, you're judging. All the time you're judging. Judgment is a discerning decision for right and wrong, for good or evil. It's not bad to judge things. It's how we carry that out. And we're not judgmental. And we'd be careful as... Christ admonition about the speck in the log. But at the same time, when we're looking at false theology, can I love those people who are teaching and peddling lies? And I, I don't know how you're, the Holy Spirit and the Word work in your life, but generally speaking, if someone asked me the question, are you sincere in your love for the brothers? Somebody's name popped up in your head pretty quickly. And that's the irritation in your life and mine. That's the one we need to pray for. Secondly, remind yourselves of the eternal weight of God's word. Application is done in lots of ways. Application is going and doing something, going and praying, going and sharing Christ with somebody, going and giving money to some effort. We can apply things. But one of the ways we apply that we don't talk about a lot is thinking differently. Think so as to have sober judgment. Think as you ought to think, Romans 12. Think clearly about God's words. So when these trends come around, when these isms and ologies bubble up, when some new book comes down the pipe, everybody's reading it, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, uh, beware of those trends and come back to this is the word. At, at some point, for all the fodder and we read and all the ink we spill and all the social media we engage in, I wonder if we spent 10% of that time with our nose in a book, how our perspective would change on things. But it's a lot easier and more fun to look at pictures and watch Instagram and Pinterest and you know, whatever else. Are we getting theology from Pinterest? God help us. Um, you might prefer to depend on others to tell you what to believe. You might prefer to depend on your friends or people you look up to. God's spoken and he's very clear. And it really isn't that hard to read. It really isn't that hard to study. 
We, we have this idea that this book's a massive book. You know, this is one book on the shelves of your home. One book, and you got your whole life to nibble at it. You don't have to be a scholar. Remind yourself of the weight of his word. It's reliable. It's eternal. It's an anchor. It's trustworthy. It won't go anywhere. It won't change. No matter what the culture assails it with. No matter how the culture redefines the terms. This is the very word of God. And Peter said, it's the word you heard. The one Isaiah spoke about, it's the same one you heard. Listen to 2 Timothy, whose time frame could not be more applicable as if it was written in the last decade. Chapter 3, verse 1, realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Does it ever catch you when Paul appears and says, like, oh, come on, disobedient to parents? Like, this is an egregious sin? Yeah. Because there's a structure he put in place, an imperfect structure, because they're imperfect, sinful parents. But we learn obedience to the Father by obedience to our human parentage. And they're not perfect. Sometimes they're difficult. They're ungrateful. Difficult days will come. They're ungrateful. What a notion. Ingratitude. Unloving. Irreconcilable. Gossips. Without self-control. Brutal. Haters of good. Treacherous. Reckless. Conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then he says, avoid such men as these. You have to put the lane lines in for a lot of things in life. He continues dropping down to verse 14. You, however, Timothy, Paul writes, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Go back to your benchmark. What did Isaiah say? Grass withers, flower fades, flower falls off. Word of God endures forever. Word of God lasts forever. What were you convinced of? And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. I find it interesting if you know Paul's story. Of course, his grandmother and his mother are the ones who raised him. He's talking to Timothy who had a Gentile half-father, if I remember correctly. He was not what we call a full Jew. Remember, he has to get him circumcised where he can take him up to the complex. So there's some Gentiles in there somewhere. He said, look, go back and remember what you learned. Isn't it interesting how important childhood is for your faith? You grandparents in the room, go, go, go. Your, your children probably aren't raising them the way you want them to anyway. <laughs> so you get the great opportunity to share Christ with them and love them and spoil them completely rotten. And then tell them about Jesus. What a better opportunity. I mean, that goes hand in hand, right? He continues, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness sake. So that the man of God will be adequate, equipped for every good work. Remind yourself of the eternal weight of this word. It's an anchor. It will never move. It will not change. We'll try to move it. We'll change. We'll move. We'll drift. It won't. A new birth, a new life, a new life, a new community grounded on this thing that's eternal. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, 
and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. 